You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back Hans-Jakob Schindler, who is, of course, a senior director at the Counter Extremism Project. In today's episode with Hans, we will discuss the two-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover and the fall of Kabul. Hans, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's great to have you again. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Hans, so perhaps we can kick off with a discussion about what is today officially the two-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover in the fall of Kabul. So since 2021, Afghanistan has been in a pretty grim situation. So maybe you could give some of our listeners a brief insight into the current environment in Afghanistan. Two years on, what are the conditions on the ground? Yes. So, I mean, obviously, the picture in Afghanistan is quite dire. So let's do this in buckets. Right? I'll mm-hmm. start with the security bucket. Mm-hmm. If you think about where the Taliban are, are they in control? Unfortunately, for everyone in particular, the Afghan population is concerned, they are in control of the full country. This is the first time they've ever been, and nothing in the last two years has changed that pyramid. They have, however, for the very first time, a opponent who is not, as the Northern Alliance was, an actual military threat, but an ideological threat, which is the Islamic State Khorasan province, ISKP. This terror group has been conducting a quite a surprising amount of large-scale and small-scale terror attacks over the last two years. The Taliban reacted with a very brutal repressive strategy, killing a lot of what they call ISKP sympathizers and members, which, as uh, credible sources say, were partly ISKP members and partly sympathizers, but also partly former members of the security and military forces of the Republic of Afghanistan, for which the Taliban had pledged their security, but now fighting ISKP presents them with a wonderful opportunity to take their revenge on these individuals. But clearly, what we have seen, and as you know, we are monitoring ISKP propaganda output in uh, the counter-extremism project on a daily basis, and we're releasing a monthly analysis of what this all means. And it's become very clear that even in the propaganda output, ISKP has moved from an aim to conduct a lot of small operations to conducting more large-scale, complex, more political-oriented operations. For example, they killed the deputy governor of Badakhshan in uh, June, and then right after that, they attacked his funeral and killed a couple more officials. Rather than having 20 attacks in Badakhshan, they had two, but I mean, obviously significant figures, including the former police chief of Badakhshan, being killed in this operation. So that's the ISKP element to this. The Al-Qaeda element on the security portfolio is fully integrated into the Taliban military now. They still have a brigade of suicide bombers, which of course begs the question against whom they would like to use that brigade. They are operating as special forces 
of the Taliban in Afghanistan against the few remnants, which is still existing, of the national resistance forces, i.e. the few fighters that stayed behind uh, from the Republic and are still trying to attack Taliban forces. And then we have one big issue, which is slowly but surely becoming a major issue between the Taliban and their traditional out-of-state backer, Pakistan. And that's the Tereka Taliban Pakistan, which is a Pakistani version of the Afghan Taliban and targets the uh, Pakistan state and Pakistan state institutions, including the police forces. And they have by 100% increased their attacks since 2021 inside Pakistan, but always withdraw on the Afghan side of the border. So giving a little bit the Pakistani security forces a flavor of how it was for the Afghan forces to fight the Taliban for the last 20 years until 2021. And they are protected as well by the Taliban. Now, the humanitarian and economic portfolio still very dire. Economic development is very, very slow. Obviously, this is a highly sanctioned economy, which wasn't really thriving in 2021 either. Plus, of course, we still have a massive illicit drugs economy, which the Taliban very obviously at the moment trying to get now fully, absolutely fully under their control. That's why we see eradication of poppy fields, but only in specific areas, not across the country. So these are networks that the Taliban are not yet controlling. And of course, we see a massive amount of increase in the production of amphetamine. And we can discuss why that is the case maybe in a minute. And then we have the human rights portfolio. And here, we, I always call that, uh, you know, our entire approach to pa- Afghanistan is back to the future. Here is definitely back to the future because in the way that the press is treated, in the way that women rights are held, in the way that human rights are held, detention without cause, torture in prisons, uh, all of this is very reminiscent and a copy and paste uh, reproduction of the Taliban rule in Afghanistan between 1994 to 2001. There is no aspect of the Taliban behavior that is in any way different to what it was in the late 1990s until 2001, including their pretty mono-ethnic structure of the power structure. So if you are Taliban, but you don't happen to be Pashtun, you're not going to get in any kind of decision-making position. Thank you. That's an extremely comprehensive helicopter view of how things have evolved over the last two years. Maybe a question on the treatment of women and girls, because that's one that has kind of captured the imagination across the globe, really. How do you see that evolving? Because there's been some sort of, I would say, maybe signaling from the Taliban regime that they're, you know, that they're going to improve or enhance the conditions of women in, in Afghanistan. But that's not really happening at all, is it? Well, I mean, yeah, because we are, again, back to the future, looking towards Kabul when we're thinking about the basic strategic and ideological decisions of the Taliban regime. In these cases, and women, women's rights is a central ideological topic for the Taliban. In these cases, Kabul is the executive arm of the Taliban movement. The decisions, however, are exclusively made by degree by the supreme leader who happens to be not in Kabul, but in Kandahar, who happens not to speak to anyone from the international community, except this time they switched. Uh, um, in the 90s, it was only the Saudis who got access. Now the Qatari got access. This is a very nice signaling to the Gulf states and then who they see as their main supporters there. But for us, the, the Western international community, this is meaningless because, I mean, we cannot expect the Emir of Qatar of all 
people to argue for women's rights in Afghanistan. <laughs> and there are two ministers in Kabul who have voiced dissenting voices. One is Yakub, the son of Mullah Omar, who is the defense minister. And one is Hakani, who is the interior minister. Now, in order for this to be credible, we would have to assume that neither, neither Yakub who is the son of the former leader of the Taliban, Noah Haqqani, who was the son of the founder of the Haqqani network, also a central figure in the Taliban movement, would not understand how this works. They can say whatever they like, because it's really nice for their relationship with the UN, with other Western powers. And I've heard rumors about you know, Europeans wanting to reopen their embassies again, because they have now detected some alleged pragmatists in the Taliban movement. These two individuals who, de- who who said that, you know, there should be some involvement of women in public life, know fully well that's not their decision. And they can make these statements and nothing will happen. Nothing will happen to them because they are so integral to the Taliban movement. But certainly they are not going to move a written degree of the supreme leader of the Taliban, who in the ideology of the Taliban is the only part of the Taliban from which legitimacy flows out to everyone else in the movement. If he doesn't change, they can talk long and broad and they made quite an impression with the international community because they understand this is one of the key aspects for stuff that the Taliban want, recognition, loosening or even rescinding of all the sanctions against the Taliban. That's what they want, especially those two ministers want. However, if you think about the history, even of Mr. Hakani, of which we know much more than of Mullah Yaqub, Hakani was a Salafist hardline network. Never in the history of the Hakani movement had women any rights in the areas that they uh, controlled. So, you know, it, it is just a bit of a propaganda. And unfortunately, as in the 1990s, where we endlessly discussing pragmatists while the Taliban were harboring Osama bin Laden in preparation of the 9-11 attacks, we are again talking about pragmatists mm. who have no influence on these on these particular decisions. They can mm. decide to move a brigade from left to right, but they cannot decide on what the status of women in, in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is going mm. to be. Does it suit the regime then to have these few individuals, Haqqani and others, sort of virtue signaling and playing the Western world to an extent by, you know, suggesting that these types of progressive moves might be on the way when in fact there's really no prospect. Yeah, of course, because I mean, we, I feel on the the European and Western side, there is a strand that says we just need to normalize what's now in Afghanistan. So we're out, right? The poor Afghans are left behind with this horrible regime. And we're not going to go back militarily at this point. So we need to normalize the situation. I even need to open our embassies again. We need to interact with the Taliban far more as if there would be a normal government than a regime, right? I don't hear any such narratives when we're talking about the military junta in Mali or in Burkina Faso, right? They also came to power by military means, not by elections. And no one wants to normalize the situation there. Now, in Afghanistan, there is this narrative that we desperately need to do this to better help the Afghan population, not understanding that neither engagement, i.e. talking to the Taliban, nor the delivery of humanitarian aid to the Afghan population is in any way or shape or form hindered by the current situation. You don't need to recognize the Taliban to deliver humanitarian aid or open your embassy to provide aid packages to the north of Afghanistan. You can do this now. 
and still make clear to the Taliban, as long as your legitimacy is simply that you conquered Kabul and you do not allow elections, and secondly, you exclude half of your own population to your own detriment, right? So the next generation of female doctors is coming from, is anyone's guest in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. to your own detriment, you absolutely oppress half your population. You are not a legitimate government. And we are not going to recognize you or open our end. Mm-hmm. But this is the this is these narratives that the Taliban leadership is playing with. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you, Hans. And I suppose the question then is, can we or is there any prospect of stability in Kabul in the foreseeable future? Is, is the sort of instability that we have seen the rise of more fragmented terrorist groups with opposing ideologies and so on and the and the tension and attacks that that has generated is that likely to deteriorate do you think in the in the coming months and years no i mean the at the moment you know stability in afghanistan is greater than it was before august 2021 which is very simple because the biggest factor of insecurity in afghanistan were the taliban so they're no longer bombing us or you know bombing purposefully their civilian population as they've done for 20 years that's gone However, of course, as I, you know, as you said and I said, there are terror groups there. The ISKP is not something that is going to just go away simply because it's not your inverted comma normal terror group as far as the Taliban are concerned, because they are presenting a similar ideology and they're saying the only pure Islam is our Islam. So too much push against ISKP always bears the risk of internal defections inside the Taliban. So there is always going to be a measure of restraint as far as this one is concerned. So that problem is going to stay. You know, they reduced the number of attacks in Afghanistan, but going to zero is very unlikely in this particular point. Secondly, Mm -hmm. is the question not on these 20 different Al-Qaeda groups that the Taliban integrated into their forces. Their loyalty is pretty much guaranteed because what's the option? Where do you want to go? To Iran? to Pakistan. Where is the home of these fighters except staying in Afghanistan and being protected by the Taliban? They have no choice. The big problem uh, is the large amount of TTP fighters that continue to attack Pakistani territory and Pakistani security forces, including bombing a mosque of the police forces in Peshawar with uh, you know dozens of people dying a couple of months ago. What is this factor going to be? Is Pakistan somehow trying or able to rein in the Taliban, which they haven't been at this point, uh, as far as this subject is concerned? Are the TTP forces, if the Taliban are trying to control them, eventually also turning against the Taliban? That's the big open question in the immediate term here. The longer term, of course, is that the Taliban continue to be divided into power centers. All of them, of course, ideologically bound to the supreme leader, who can be a final arbiter, but sometimes just chooses not to be one. For example, a couple of months ago, there was an armed confrontation between two Taliban groups in the north of Afghanistan when it came to the control of some coal mines, right? So one power broker needed to be out and the other one wanted to come in. And that was only resolvable through actual fighting Taliban against Taliban. These instances, as the situation won't really economically improve, i.e. the cake will not get bigger so that everyone gets a bigger slice, it will remain pretty scarce. And you can never exclude some ambitions of some Taliban power brokers who command locally all of the security forces or the governorship, the military in that area, as well as the intelligence forces in that area to, you know, try to better their lot 
economically within the Taliban power structure. That is also a lingering source of conflict that the Taliban will have to deal with, but don't really have a structure to do so. Mm -hmm. Finally, Hans, you have been involved, obviously, and you've alluded to it, a lot of research and monitoring and analysis over the last two years, produced some really interesting research with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. And recently, we published a research paper with the EUISS with a focus on what European policymakers should focus on. In your view, what should the priority be in terms of how the European Union responds now to, to the regime? And how should they act in the in the coming months and years yeah um, again i keeping with my you know theme back to the future in this case we shouldn't go back to the future what i see is that uh, very naturally we now have a land war um, in ukraine on our hands which is of course strategically the more immediate threat and definitely the more direct threat than afghanistan although i have to mention that a group of iskp fighters who had posed as refugees, instructed by ISKP to do so, were arrested um, about two weeks ago in Germany. So, you know, so far for ISKP not wanting to conduct overseas attacks, this was not someone they inspired living in Germany. This was someone they, or a group of individuals they recruited and sent on the way to Germany to conduct terror attacks here. So this is slightly worse than you know, just in inspiring via internet. So the threat is also, you know, already a little bit more felt here in Germany than it may be in other places in Europe. But clearly, Ukraine and Russia is the intelligence challenge of the moment in Europe. That, of course, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan meant everyone reduced their capabilities in Afghanistan as far as human resources is concerned, as far as intelligence analysts, language capabilities... This is all understandable. We're no longer in the country with thousands of European or tens of thousands of European and American troops. But we shouldn't treat Afghanistan like we treated it in the late 90s, where everyone you know, had a basic idea what was going on in Afghanistan. Luckily, uh, the German intelligence service still had a focus there, you know, maintained sources there. But we were pretty alone at that time uh, prior to 2001. Uh, we shouldn't get back to that situation. Afghanistan is not in an interconnected global world, a strange place where strange people do strange things to other strange people. If that's the attitude, that is a very dangerous attitude. And we should have learned the lessons from the 1990s. If you have a Taliban regime who outwardly says, of course, they have no ambitions to sponsor terror attacks outside, but being part of a global jihadist movement, they need a link to the outside. And their link to the outside are foreign terrorist groups like the TTP, like Al-Qaeda, to a certain extent also ISKP, because the relationship between the Haqqani network and ISKP is not quite as adversary as it may be portrayed in the media sometimes. Um, these are the links. So no, the Taliban are not going to try to bomb Frankfurt Airport, but the Taliban are happy to protect those who do try. Right. So that is the lesson we should have learned in the 1990s. And I'm not 100% sure that we have fully internalized that lesson yet, partially because, you know, our withdrawal didn't really gather any glorious points here, partly because just exhaustion. We've been in that country for 20 years. And the last thing that people want to think about politically or resource wise, apart from humanitarian stuff, is at the moment Afghanistan. But it does. And that's why we did this report with the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung. That's why you and me, Lucinda, wrote this article for EU ISS to just simply say, 
This cannot be the only thing we discuss. Whether sanctions are detrimental to humanitarian work is a very important discussion, but that cannot be the only point of policy making, strategic thinking, you know, maintaining of resources when it comes to Afghanistan. I think that's extremely well put. And I hope that some of those policymakers will be listening to your advice on this podcast. Hans, thank you very much for joining this short review of the situation in Afghanistan today on the two-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover. And I think this is clearly a topic we'll be returning to. So I look forward to that. But for now, thank you so much, Hans, for your time today. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about fighting terror and the counter-extremism project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.